Hello, welcome to episode 13 of the Wilder podcast. I am Tom Constable and this is Chloe. Good evening, everyone. So I suppose we should start at the start, a very brief introduction to the Wilder podcast. If you're new to this, welcome to listening to it. Chloe and I, our husband and wife, we are doing a myriad of things, but we are wilding our eight acres in Monmouthshire. And the podcast is about interviewing really interesting guests and also just educating ourselves on things like wilding, rewilding or sustainability or climate change and really exploring the so what's associated with that. Why is it important? Why should we care about it? This episode is definitely no exception. We are doing a deep dive, as they would say, into a concept with our guests this week. So please stick around with Dr. Stephen Carver. He's one of the senior lecturers over at Leeds University. And we're talking about specifically rewilding or what we mean, they mean, everyone means by rewilding and what academics mean by it and why do, should we care about the word, what it means and how to define it. So definitely want to skip around to it. If you want to, in the show notes, you can jump forward to it. It's got the timestamp there. We're talking about digging deep and diving deep into things, Chloe. Do you want to give an update? Well, we have lots of piles of earth over the fields and a half-finished drainage system. Yeah, so... And a lot of mud. If you haven't listened to the last episode, episode 12, we gave an update like we do every week on our project. And one of the main things that's happening is drainage being dug because basically, historically, water just goes straight through the house and the barns here as opposed to around it. So we felt it might be important before the monsoon, Welsh monsoon rains come. However, despite the valiant efforts, one might say Herculean efforts of our groundswork guys that have been doing this, they've just admitted defeat. Basically. Yeah, first it defeated the dumper, then it was the diggers, and then I think it was them. I think everyone by turn. But the cool thing is, we do have quite a lot of piles of earth around the place that look, you know, they look like they might turn into like invertebrate banks in the long term. I just quite worked out. They're just not in the right place. They're going to have to get moved. Yeah, that's true. But they're a great team. We was really unfortunate hit the rain at the literally where it rained solidly and heavily for two weeks. However, majority of the work's been done. All the key areas are now covered, so we don't have the torrents of rain going between the houses. So generally, it's a positive. And I think the swales definitely have wetland vibes. Definitely. There's wetland vibes coming. We'll put some pictures on the Instagram page for that as well. So anything else update on before we go to the interview? I think we should talk about your new companion, your walking companion. Who needs a dog when you can have a pickaxe? The inanimate object. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I again, I did a post about this on Instagram. Uh, link will be in the show notes. But I have started taking a very large, sharp pickaxe on walks. And it all came from reading something. I don't know where it was. Maybe it was in Book of Wilding. I don't know. But anyway, talking about the value of wild boar wallows. So I just thought, well, I can do that. And why not be productive on a walk? As opposed to just having a walk and enjoying nature, why not carry a pickaxe and at appropriate intervals throughout the walk, create a wild boar wallow. Therefore, not only have we been productive, the dogs have been for a walk, but there's also something valuable for the land as well. And I'm genuinely excited to see what starts to emerge on that kind of exposed soil next year. Yeah, and some of the benefits, according to my research, to do with these wild boar wallows is obviously there are no wild boar around where we live. Nope. Um, so therefore, and they provide an important role for nature and provide their own little mini ecosystems, essentially kind of boosting biodiversity via like mini habitats. They attract insects and vertebrates and birds and create a kind of thriving microcosm of life, one might say. <laughs> but, and it also, not so much right now, but as we get down into kind of summer months, they can provide a really valuable water source for wildlife as well. Well, I'm excited to track their progress. Mm. So just before we introduce the podcast, shall we talk about our special bonus episode that will be released between Christmas and New Year? 
Yeah, we're testing out something a little bit different this time in that we are going to take some clips from some of the interviews that have happened over the kind of autumn season of the podcast. And I'm going to pick three and Tom's going to pick three. And we're not going to know which we picked. And then we're going to have a debate between us or a discussion to us about why we picked them, why they're raising out for us. And it'll be kind of like a, not a good, I don't want to say greatest hits, but it'll be kind of a sense about some of the conversations that have resonated for us and why they have. Yeah, that's grandiose greatest hits there, I think. But what I want it to be is a signpost, essentially. For anyone that's new to the podcast, they can listen to that one episode, really get a flavour for some of the great chats we've had and know where they might want to get themselves to learn more. Yeah. And which you know, is, is probably as important, if not more, is that we introduce you to one of the, our first, well, newest member of the Grange Project team as well. Yeah, we could not be more excited to be working alongside another fantastic team member and we look forward to introducing you to her in our next podcast. Well, let's get into this interview. So when I first chatted to Stephen prior to doing the recording, what gripped me is obviously his passion and knowledge about rewilding and how much he truly cares about the importance of giving it the right name because that names have power from his perspective and also how he wasn't scared to kind of have a maybe a, a less mainstream view on some things and I think that's really exciting for this project and this podcast because that's what we're trying to achieve isn't it we don't want it to be an echo chamber we want everyone to have the same opinion we want everyone to be enlightened and be able to learn from each other even if you don't necessarily align on everything that's discussed and as a kind of little hint into the richness of the interview when I listen back, I've made 10 notes of kind of ideas I wanted to talk more about, things I wanted to debate, discuss. That's just a snapshot of just how rich the conversation is. Here he is. Stephen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for this you know, opportunity to have a chat. We had our prep call and it was really different, the prep call with you, which I really appreciated. It's nice to speak to people with different views. And I personally really appreciate someone that has an opinion an ethical position or a personal opinion, but stands by it and doesn't just go with the flow. And I think that's hopefully one of the main topics we're going to pull out here is going, you know, is, is leaning on your wisdom and your experience to kind of help advise and guide us on our journey. Now, in keeping with the tradition of the podcast, we always ask our guests to introduce themselves. So how do you find yourself in your position that you are in now? And what do you currently do for your day job? Day job, I'm senior lecturer in geography at the University of Leeds. Um, I'm also director of the Wildland Research Institute, which is an organisation which was set up just over 10 years ago now to provide policy advice and spatial analysis, so GIS mapping expertise, to a range of clients, governments, NGOs, etc., individual landowners, looking at the wilder end of the landscape continuum. So wilderness areas, wildland areas, target areas for rewilding. I then find myself invited to join with colleagues, the IUCNs, uh, which was then a, a, a rewilding task force and now a uh, the, the rewilding thematic group. So that's a global organization where we're looking to really bottom out what rewilding is all about and provide a definition of a set of guiding principles. Which leads us very nicely on to the kind of the first question, which is, I imagine you could probably fill a couple of books in answering this, but um, what does rewilding mean to you? <laughs> um, yeah, it's simple for we can boil it down to say giving nature the space and the time to dictate its own outcomes. So there's that well-worn phrase which says nature abhors a vacuum. So if we give nature a blank palette, it will fill it. 
it'll fill it with species and habitats and ecosystem processes and disturbances, etc. What we get at the end of the day might not necessarily be what we expect, but that's nature filling a void, if you like. So if we step back and allow nature to take its own course, it will do stuff. It'll do interesting stuff. And as I say, some of it might not be what we expected or what we hope to see, but it will be natural. Whether it's wild and native to a particular patch of land is another matter. But, you know, in terms of natural processes, it largely in the absence of human interference or influence, that's rewilding. And is there a scale at which you know, is a minimum requirement for a project to be, under your definition, to be rewilding? I think it's a fuzzy one, is that. It's not an easy question to answer. But the suggestion that you can rewild a window box in, a, in, a, in an urban tower block is a bit silly. I mean, you can help nature in terms of planting the right things, uh, which, you know, are, are valuable to wild nature and pollinators or, or, or other insects which might benefit from that. But, you know, I think the larger the scale, the better. But it's not just about scale. It's about uh, geographical context. So where it is that we're talking about and scale will vary depending on the habitats and ecosystems we're actually interested in. Also, definitely that connectivity. So how rewilded landscapes or patches of rewilded land connect up to create something which the sum of the parts is greater than the whole. Okay, so context, basically. So the answer to that is, yeah, it, it, it depends. It depends. Uh, like yeah. so many things, it's easy yeah. to ask a question, which it's, it's pretty straightforward. But then you start going, with all the what about and the wherefores and the therefores. And it is really, yeah. at the end of the day, about context. But, you know, we underline everything with the phrase, well, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to pick back up on, on something you said a little, a little bit earlier on allowing nature to lead and to kind of do its own thing in, at its own time, which sounds evidently sensible. What's your thoughts on... I'm just genuinely interested, I suppose, in your in your perspective on this. Is what's your thoughts on? Obviously, we are in a climate emergency, a biodiversity emergency. Is the position still to be allow nature to take its time, or can there be situations or I don't know, projects where it is appropriate to support nature along on its journey? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if again, you know, going back to the definition of rewilding, you know, giving nature space and the time to dictate its own trajectories, we might want to step in and initially give nature a helping hand in that process. So there are two basic parts uh, or definitions or classes of rewilding, if you like. We could talk about passive rewilding, which, you know, uh, example of which might be land abandonment. So, you know, the, the best or indeed the worst, if you want to think of it that way, is an uh, example of this is Chernobyl and what happened there. Yeah. I think people evacuated the area literally almost overnight. And nature basically went, woohoo, you know, I mean, ignoring the, the radiological problems, yeah. nature suddenly got, oh, we've got a blank palette here, guys. You know, we can, we can do what we want. You know, we can be ourselves again. And so that is a, it turned into a very rich ecological ecosystem in developing under its own, own steam, so to speak. I mean, yes, it's been disrupted now by the unfortunate situation that we find ourselves in the Ukraine war. But, you know, that was a good example of a land abandonment and passive rewilding. People saw stuff, interesting things happening there, and, you know, then suddenly thought, oh, we need to intervene a little bit, which then takes us down that other avenue of active rewilding, 
you know, our sort of interventionist, where we might decide that rewilding is a good policy for a particular area, patch of land, ecosystem, landscape, and we step in to remove human influence, actively remove human influence, kickstart the natural processes, whether that's through species reintroductions or whether it's through assisted regeneration of natural habitats, you know, reforestation, for example, and rewetting or river restoration, those sorts of things. Now, that will be a more active approach. So the two basic categories, passive on the one hand, active on the other. And okay, it's a bit of a, you know, not say a false dichotomy, you know, those are two extremes, but you know, there's a blended approach somewhere in the middle in that, again, back to context, and it depends, you know, what's best for a particular landscape and how can we best achieve those desired end states. And then in itself is a, is, a, is a problem. You know, we as humans have short lifespans in the context of ecological landscape scale development, mm-hmm. and we want to see things happen quickly. And we maybe have, a, you know, a sort of vision, a design outcome for a particular project. We want to see things happen quickly before we're part of the landscape in another way, pushing <laughs> up daisies, you know. So, you know, there's a temptation there to rush in and do stuff and not just let nature decide its own trajectories. Sitting here as probably, I guess our project might be sitting on more the kind of active interventionist end of the rewilding spectrum. And I, I just assuming that we even define this project as rewilding, which we'll come back to, Steve. But okay, you know, okay, no, no, I'm not sure we will, but yes, absolutely. Yeah, that, okay. Acknowledging that. So let's just suspend that for the second because I think we should come back to that. But I guess what I'm interested in is it, it feels like you're kind of saying there's a bit of an it kind of implicit risk in sitting in too much of the active end of a spectrum. And I suppose I, I don't, I might have misinterpreted that, but I'm kind of curious about what the risk might be of becoming too over controlling of allowing nature to fill its own vacuum. Yep. You know, I think you're right in that there are risks associated with that. I mean, there are distinct advantages depending you know again you know it depends depending what you're trying to do let's just take species you know biodiversity on its own for a minute if that's at all possible is that if a species is locally rare but globally common then is it actually worth our while or are we barking up the wrong treatise so to speak in terms of putting a lot of effort into managing a particular habitat all that particular species in that particular location and all of the ecological disbenefits that may entail in terms of the wider landscape and ecological processes. So, I mean, it's the nature of traditional conservation to focus in on what are seen to be valued and rare habitats and species and manage, actively manage for that purpose, to maintain that patch of land or that ecosystem in the condition for which it was originally noted and recognised. You know, so that's active active management. However, if a species is, you know, as I say, is locally rare but globally common, is, is that really missing the point? I can see it being really important if a species is, you know, let's say locally common but globally rare, is to maintain its habitat and car areas so it doesn't become extinct. But to spend too much time actively managing for a particular species or habitat which might you know might be tons of it elsewhere in the world then you know maybe that's not the way to go in all circumstances but what i'm kind of coming around to saying is that 
because traditional conservation designates sites for a particular interesting species or habitat assemblage or whatever and, and manages it to keep it like that. That flies in the face of ecological succession. Nature wants to develop and through the processes of disturbance and succession, you know, sort of maximize biomass for um, sort of a given unit area, the relevant adaptive conditions that are, are present, you know, so soil, climate, topography, and keeping ecosystems and species in status through active management kind of flies in the face of that. What I would dearly love to see is a, a suite or assemblage of, of landscapes and ecosystems across the country where nature, natural succession is allowed to take place. Quite often say to my students, you know, give an example, a lake. It's the nature of a lake to slowly over time fill up with sediment. You know, stream water flows in and it's carrying sediment with it. The lake slows the water down. It drops the sediment. So over time, the lake fills up. To simplify things, it becomes, you know, it becomes a reed bed. The reed bed becomes a marsh, which then becomes a raised bog, and the raised bog becomes a heath, and the heath becomes a forest, and the forest, mm. you know, that, that's what it's trying to do. Over a few, you know, weeks, months, yeah. <laughs> well, well, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, many, many hundreds of years. That, <laughs> and then so the cycle repeats. Traditional conservation will try to stop that. It'll say, oh, this is an interesting lake, and it's got this species and that species. We've got to keep it as a lake, you know, and stop the reed bed encroaching and blah, 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 you know. And so we do this, you know, active management. Rewilding is different from that. You know, it's about allowing, as I said earlier, nature, the space and the time to dictate its own trajectories and outcomes. Not something that we want it to do, but something that nature wants to do. That has done, I'm not going to be wrong, that has benefits for us. You know, there's side benefits in terms of ecosystem services and well, landscapes of wonderment, you know, and, and inspiration and all of that sort of human benefit side of things. But it might not necessarily be what we want it to do initially. And that, that actually leads really nicely onto my next question, Jim, which is if you can articulate what the benefits are of allowing nature that kind of free hand, what would you describe as the main benefits from an ecological perspective? Well, from an ecological perspective, and this is really important in terms of the, you know, the core principles of rewilding, is that we need to recognize the intrinsic value of wild nature. It's not about us, it's about it, so to speak. It's about wild nature and the benefits that that has for itself, not necessarily for us. But what we need to recognize in the, the wider scheme of things is that we 100% rely on wild nature for our existence. Uh -huh. Ultimately, we are wild animals, although I think as human beings, we've become the exceptional species. You know, we've transgressed the boundary between what you might consider, and this is to some extent, for some people, really controversial, but to some extent, we've become something other than uh -huh. natural. Yes, we are carbon-based life forms, we're mammals, you know, we're all the rest of it, but we've become, through our technology and our society and our culture and politics and our obsession with capitalist systems and stuff that we've become something other so i think maybe it's the, not necessarily the right question to ask is what you know are the benefits of rewilding to us as human beings it's more what's the benefits of rewilding to nature to wild nature in particular but you know coming again coming full circle i think you know we really need to grasp that particular nettle and in terms of the you know the ongoing climate and biodiversity crises and turn that ship around and say well if we don't do this then either the age of humans on the planet is questionable 
um, as, as a dominant species, um, you know, literally that serious. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, maybe it's it's the right question to ask, but it's also the wrong question to ask, if you see what I mean. Yeah, sobering. To move this on to something, I mean, a lighter note, I'm not sure. I feel like I'm, we may get told off here. So we, of course, have started this journey and we didn't have any background in ecology, restoration, rewilding, whatever you might call it. So we were inspired by rewilding as a phrase and as a term because we could instantly kind of relate to it and guess that we knew what it meant. Of course, now as we dig into it, it's far more complicated and nuanced appropriately so than we we understood. So I suppose I'm keen to get your reflections on your thoughts on our project and maybe I can give you a little bit more detail on the project just to recap. And then from your reflections, I'd like to understand why you feel words are important, especially when talking about these kind of topics and these kind of projects. Mm-hmm. I've looked at your web pages and uh, we had that conversation before and uh, and, and I'm, I'm getting all my memories faded, <laughs> but not quite that bad. I think what you're doing is great, you know, and I think more people could usefully take a leaf out of your book and do this sort of thing. But yeah, I mean, words do matter. And is it rewilding? You know, question mark over that, you know, because I think rewilding occupies a certain space, as I've described. What you're doing and ecosystem restoration Rewilding, I think, you know, from my perspective, really is something different. Yes, it occupies a particular space or envelope on the environmental modification spectrum. And just to sort of expand on that, this this idea of a spectrum of landscape modification from urban areas at the left-hand end of a line all the way through to wilderness, you know, true wilderness areas at the right end end of a line. And as you move from left to right, you see reducing levels of human intervention and management and modification of landscapes. And as you move towards the left, you see increasing levels, so lowering levels of wildness and naturalness. And rewilding occupies a certain segment in the middle somewhere in that what rewilding is trying to push habitats, landscapes, ecosystems further towards the right, towards the wilderness end of the spectrum. If rewilding is successful, ultimately, it creates new wilderness areas, but it has a limited frame, you know, a window in the middle of that spectrum. So you might start off at the far left in the, the urban areas with things like, you know, remediation, and then in agri-landscapes, regenerative agriculture fits that more sort of ecological restoration window, if you like, fading into rewilding, where removing human extractive land use entirely from the land and allowing that to go back to nature. So with entirely natural towards natural habitats without any extractive agriculture. So land which has, albeit uh, use of, let's say, domestic herbivores, so cattle, sheep, etc., as a vector of ecosystem function, you know, of proxies for wild species. If that pressure is, or rather that those animals are taken off land as a meat product, then that's still farming in a way. It's farming mm-hmm. in a more regenerative way. So the most famous example in, in the UK, of course, is NEP. And, you know, the NEP estate, they're still farming the land. So the, the, the livestock that they have on the land is still controlled and the meat product is extracted from the land. So therefore, it's still farming. And as I say, if it's farming, it ain't rewilding. Interesting. Somewhere on the spectrum, 
And I would say for NEP, at best, it's rewilding light rather than a rewilding max approach, but it is still a farm at the end of the day. So, you know, that's a question you've got to ask yourselves is that, is, you know, what are those animals for? Are they there as a, a ecological disturbance mechanism, um, which modifies ecological trajectories from current state to some future state? Or are they there as uh, a cash crop, if you um, you know, producing a meat product? And, you know, at net, they are definitely both of those things. You know, they are uh, a vector of ecological disturbance, but they're also there to produce a meat product. You know, and it's a high-value meat product, which is sold at a premium because of where it's from and how it's raised. But that still makes it a farm. So therefore, I think it fits in the regenerative agriculture basket rather than the rewilding basket. Following that, if NEP or indeed us wanted to really subscribe to your kind of definition of rewilding, what would they need to be? What would we need to be doing kind of differently? Because I guess my understanding is that we have to remove some, well, or indeed NEP have to remove some of the animals from their site because there are no other predators that would be doing that. Mm. Uh, so I'm kind of curious about what you'd be suggesting for those of us that are not fortunate enough to own Yellowstone National Park and therefore <laughs> why? Yeah, oh, I mean, the picture. Yeah, this is absolutely, and it's, you know, it's a tricky one in a, in a, in a relatively small and, and compartmentalised landscape like the UK in that, you know, we want to do various things here. One is rewild at landscape scale. And of course, we're limited by various things. Scale of the landscape, for one. Land ownership is another. Some of the laws about fences and prey and predator in the same enclosure really create problems there. So NEP is, you know, whatever it is, a bigger state, but it is split into compartments, you know, and, and although the, uh, the herbivores are free ranging, they are free ranging within limits. And so there are, there are fences in smaller landscapes in the UK, Europe, elsewhere, where there are these conflicting land pressures, you know, we're not talking Yellowstone here, then you have to split the landscape up into blocks using fences or proxies for fences, you know, so these, you know, GPS color things, you know, these, these invisible fence line type approaches. So with NEP, you know, taking that as an example, you know, I actually asked Charlie a while ago, I said, look, Charlie, how do you decide how much meat to harvest from the land? And he goes, what do you mean? Said, well, if you take too much off, then the natural regenerative capacity of the scrub and the forest will mean that it outstrips the grazing pressure because you're taking you know, a substantial meat harvest off the land and keeping the herd small, the habitat will trend towards closed canopy woodland. And you now agree. But if you take too little off, then the natural fecundity of the herd will mean that the herd size will grow and grow, similar to what happened at Ursvaresplassen in the Netherlands, to such an extent that the grazing capacity outstrips the regenerative capacity of the scrub and the forest. And you will end up with, and I said at the time, you'll end up with Netvaresplassen. You know, you end up with this savannah grassland with no trees so you know the question is how much meat do you decide to take off the land and he goes well i've taken off off to get wood pasture you know and, and that was it you know that was the answer is that charlie wanted wood pasture he wanted this landscape of open parkland grassland with a few trees here and there which you know is a capability style sort of serengeti in the southern counties type landscape you know so that was predicated on some desired outcome and that is going back to our earlier conversation about um, 
human intervention uh, in assisted rewilding and desired outcomes within our limited lifespan, that hits to the nub of the problem. Fences, herbivores, no predatory pressure because the landscape's too small requires human intervention, and that human intervention is then guided by some design outcome. And in the MEP instance, you know, the design outcome is, is wood pasture. So then is rewilding in the UK, for example, is that even achievable, practically achievable? Because of the scenarios you gave where either we have too many herbivores and they, they turn it all with too little, and then it has to be managed at some level in those two examples or three examples if you include NEP as well. So is it even possible to achieve the holy grail of the rewilding concept that, that you're alluding to? Um, it's limited, I think. It's limited by land ownership. It's limited by scale. It's limited by aspiration. So I think if you know, look at rewilding Britain, they have an, an aspiration to the 30-30, 30 by 30 vision of 30% restored landscape. So I think target two or is it target three? I can't remember the COP Kunmin Montreal agreement says uh-huh. that we should look towards restoring 30% of our landscapes to high biodiversity. So rewilding Britain have that target, but they're only saying, well, 5% of that be called rewilded areas. And then you go ask the question, well, what does that actually mean? Where are they going to be? So if you look at five, let's, you can map any area. And we've done this. This is my own specialism, the global scales down to local scales. You can take any sort of geographical window and you can map its ecological integrity and wildness, if you like, using various attributes such as human modification, land cover, remoteness, those kind of indices. And if you look at the UK as an island, it's always handy to have an island because you don't have edge effect, particularly on the terrestrial sense anyway, you can map a continuum, you know, that landscape continuum that we were talking about earlier, you can map it from least wild to most wild. So it's relatively easy in a country like the UK to identify the top 5% wildest areas. Those could be your core rewilding locations because Mm. they are already pretty ecologically natural. They're a long way from human population. They're not really being used for extractive human land use, maybe a bit of light grazing or some forestry. So it's relatively easy to identify where those areas are. I would say that rewilding Britain needs to be a bit more ambitious and say like 10% core. You know, that matches with the European Union of, of identifying 10% for strong nature protection. And we could do that. The other 25% or the other 20%, if we go for the 10% call, would be regenerative agriculture. So acknowledging that many of our marginal areas of agricultural land are subject to some level of agricultural pressure, you know, whether that's rough grazing or whether it's a silvicultural pressure, so plantation forest, or indeed water, water resources, then we could identify those landscapes. That doesn't say that they, there's no room for little, you know, smaller bits in between. Because I think going back to the, the issue of connectivity, then you, your land, could be a stepping stone between mm-hmm. some of these larger patches. And so this is what we're doing with rewilding Britain at the moment at Leeds University, is where we've been mapping ecological integrity and connectivity at the national scale to enable a more strategic approach to identifying where the key areas rewilding might be to connect up or to improve the ecological connectivity between these core areas. And so it depends on how you slice it up. 
So my big question about the Kunmin Montreal Agreement was that this is great, you know, by the way, I'm just saying you know, targets one, two, and three are really where we're t- what we're talking about here. But it, nowhere in that agreement did it say how we're going to do that. Are they global targets? Are they continental targets or national targets? Or indeed, are, they, are we better looking across national boundaries and looking at these targets and saying, we want to protect 30% of all of the savanna landscapes and 30% of all the woodland landscapes and 30% of all the desert landscapes. So at least we have the best 30% of each of these representative eco, global ecosystems protected for wild nature. So I would have loved to have seen that somewhere in that uh, in that agreement is exactly how we're going to do that. And, you know, it's a, it's a tricky one. And indeed, the rest of the target, a lot of the, the remaining targets were all about the role of, you know, society and indigenous cultures in meeting those targets. You know, because if you look at, let's say, if it was a global target, where's the top 30%? Well, if we ignore all the snow and ice around the world, then a lot of those 30% areas will be areas of, uh, you know, which are predominantly occupied by indigenous cultures. Mm. Um, so it's um, it's a matter of, you know, where the cookie crumbles and you know, where the axe falls off. Or, or, you know, it's not good. That's not a good metaphor. It's how you slice the world up. And, you know, we can look at that at the UK level. How do we slice the UK up? Do we say England, Scotland, and Wales? Or do we look at it in the biomes, you know, mountains, coasts, forests, you know, we don't have many wild grasslands anymore for obvious reasons, but you see where I'm driving at. Yeah, what you're suggesting there takes a huge amount of political will to be able to put something like that together. And just bringing it back, not that I can't let go of things, although I'm sure Chloe will tell you that's probably that's probably quite accurate, mm-hmm. but we chose the rewilding name and we, we're, we're moving more towards wilder whales or whatever it is now and trying to pick, find out where we sit and maybe we don't sit on the rewilding side, but we chose that because we, we would do, did want to connect with the people who don't understand. So in order to, to achieve that kind of political will, we've got to make sure we bring the general public, myself included, along with us on the journey. So yes, calling things the right name is important, but then what is what is the risk with changing the name from rewilding to something else that maybe people can't relate to as easily? And then on the flip side of that is what are the, what are the risks of misapplication? So everyone calling it rewilding when it's not. Yeah, I see what you're driving at. It's a tricky one. I, I never really liked the word rewilding to begin with. It's problematic in that the rebit, mm. some people kind of screams, you know, we're trying to turn the clock back to some sort of prehistoric landscape. Whereas, you know, the re can really just be about reinstating. But, you know, I always view rewilding as not trying to go back to some previous era before intensive agriculture or whatever. It's more of a forward-looking approach. It's about future landscapes, you know, and as I said before, in terms of the biodiversity and climate crisis, we've got to do that. It has become a bit of a bandwagon, and as a result of it becoming a populist bandwagon, you know, every Tom, Dick and Harry or Harriet is perhaps wanting to call their project rewilding or label it as rewilding. If it's moving it along that landscape continuum to be slightly wilder or you know a lot wilder depending, that's great. But is it actually rewilding? So in terms of the global IUCN definition of rewilding, then it occupies, as I say, a certain window on that landscape spectrum. So I do no more may. 
you know, I don't have the, the luxury of having a you know large patch of land or a farm or whatever. And, you know, I've got a small urban garden. I do my little bit where I can, but so I've been doing mo- no mo may for ages because I'm basically I'm lazy. <laughs> and, and, and there's a good reason for it. <laughs> I do like to see the wildflowers in my in my lawn. It's not rewilding, yet it has certain ecological, local ecological benefits in terms of you know wildflowers and, and pollinating insects and blah 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 blah. But it ain't rewilding. It sits in a suburban landscape, and as much as I would love to rewild somewhere, you know, I'm not a rich man, and, and you know, I don't have those kinds of funds. And, and my hats off to you for doing what you've done, because you've you know you've shown commitment to that lifestyle and doing your bit, so to speak. But yeah, we can all do our bit by no more may or you know the RSVBs build it and they will come program and things doing our little bits for nature. But I do think, you know, rewilding occupies a certain niche. And to try to turn rewilding as a movement, as an ecological concept in in nature conservation, to make it apply to everything is wrong. Somebody much more clever than I, a guy called Tony Sinclair, in a presentation he did uh, about six years ago now, said in conclusion to his presentation, he said, if a term, be it ecological restoration or rewilding, applies to everything, then it also means nothing. And so, yes, that's it. You know, rewilding is something different. We have in the past been forced into a mode of conservation, which is about putting a line around a patch of land and saying, oh, this is interesting. We need to keep it like it is and managing it, managing it as such. You know, that's traditional fortress conservation. Rewilding is a different approach. It's about turning around on its head and saying, well, okay, we perhaps need the boundaries and that's where our mapping comes in or at least target areas. But it's about saying, well, no, it's not about what we want. It's, it's about that intrinsic value of nature and what nature wants to be and all of the benefits, you know, the side benefits to humans and, and, the, and the huge benefits to wild nature that that entails. There was a paper a few years ago by Hayward et al., which looked at was just, just describing rewilding as this kind of Pandora's box, you know, this 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 um, uh, the king's king's new clothes type thing for conservation, uh, and saying that there's nothing new about rewilding. Well, I, w- I would counter that and say, well, you know, rewilding is is a kind of restoration, but not all restoration is rewilding. And we came up with a model which I think is quite useful. And so if you think about ecological restoration, whether that's regenerative agriculture or high nature value farming or river restoration or coastal realignment or whatever, there are definite endpoints to those processes, those, those interventions, but using natural processes to achieve them. So we would say that ecological restoration as an approach, it's human-led but nature-enabled. So it's about us as humans using natural processes to get to a particular desired endpoint. And if that's a restored river or it's a high nature value farm or whatever, that's restoration. So human-led, nature-enabled. Rewilding's different. Rewilding is the opposite of that. So rewilding, we would say, is nature-led, human-enabled. So it's nature-determining, back to our definition at the start, it's nature-determining its own trajectories and outcomes. At some point in the future, maybe it's you know open ended, and we're just allowing that to happen. So we're giving it the space and allowing it the time for that to actually happen. The opposite, the flip, if you like, from ecological restoration and traditional conservation. 
I feel like Tom and I are going to have to listen back to this interview and look at all of the wording on our <laughs> website and think a bit about <laughs> ourselves and what our intentionality is and where do we sit on active and passive. And I think it's, for me, it's brought yeah. up loads of, loads of questions, which I think is, you know, a good conversation. And, and to positionality, you know, so I got, yeah. I got pulled up in a meeting a couple of months ago about my positionality in respect to, you know, something else about wilderness. I'm a white, western, middle-aged Yorkshireman, you know, and so that gives me a certain positional outlook on things. And it's really difficult to think about nature conservation and rewilding and restoration and all these things from the point of view, you know, I keep saying this about intrinsic value of nature, its own right to exist. You know, it's really difficult for us to do that, but we you know, we have the brains to sort of try to think outside our own beings and acknowledge that. So you as uh, a you know, young couple with a vision on a piece of land, it's Monmouthshire, isn't it? You know, that gives you a certain positionality. And, you know, I think you, you, you've got to be, to some extent, I think a little bit cautious and cognizant of the, you know, the Welsh cultural history that you know, embedded within land. You know, look at the failure of the Summit to Sea program. You know, I was initially involved with that at one level doing the mapping. And, and, you know, at one point I was asked, would I like to be the scientific lead on that? And I said, well, I'm in Leeds, not in Aberystwyth. I'm not Welsh. You know, I kind of backed off at that point. I said, yeah, well, thanks for asking, but no thanks. You know, I could just see the problems bubbling, starting to bubble up with the rewilding term in a Welsh cultural rural setting. But on that note, you're right. But then, you know, you were saying that maybe we were more on the regenerative agriculture side of life, but I'm pretty sure that there's a number of Welsh farmers screaming at the podcast right now, assuming they listen to it. I'm sure they do. Hello, guys and girls. <laughs> but, you know, say, that, hang on, I mean, these guys aren't doing regenerative you know, agriculture. How dare you suggest that Sully are good, good hard work? So the risk and the concern, of course, is that you end up sitting in no man's or person's land, let's be more specific, yeah, um, yeah. going forward. And yeah, I, and uh, obviously we're not going to get... No, no, I mean, we're not going to answer all those questions. Yeah. I think one of the things I, I kind of meant to say when when you asked about, Claire, when you asked about, you know, how we're going to make this work, uh, and there's a little, little model, you know, it's difficult to describe, um, but if you imagine two triangles, one with its broad base on the bottom and the other one with its broad base at the top, both intersecting. So there's a diamond shape where the two triangles intersect. The top triangle represents government policy and fiscal mechanisms. So getting government level policy, let's say on a 30 by 30 vision and the top 30% for you know restoration and you know biodiversity protection, or the 10% you know strong protection target. Get that right with the correct and, and appropriately funded fiscal mechanisms, then the bottom up buy in to rewilding, you're going to get that community level landowner buying because they see the sweet spot in the middle, that diamond shape where the two triangles intersect as being the sweet spot. So you get that bottom up buy in aided and allowed, functionalized by that top-level policy, top-down policy, so where the bottom up joins the top-down, that's the sweet spot. You know, I think getting that right is going to allow rewilding in certain circumstances to happen, you know, such that we can identify 10% of the UK landscape for coal rewilding and another 20 for regenerative agriculture. There's still got to be places for intensive agriculture because we've got to put food on the table. I'm as fond of my food and my beer as anybody else. So, you know, nobody's saying rewild everywhere. It is quite a niche 
approach, but it it will have benefits far beyond its immediate boundaries and its relative size. Yeah. So I think, you know, as long as it's properly funded and enough people buy in, and that's one of our guiding principles of rewilding, you know, I think it's principle principle six is that, you know, if there isn't that community level buy-in, it ain't going to happen. It needs people to accept it and and go with it. Agreed. And I think that's a really nice and strong thought to finish this interview and chat on. Thank you very much for your thoughts, your, in, your insights, your debate and discussion. I feel like I'd love you to come down here for a pint so we can have, or, or, or a gin and tonic or no, pint. non-alcoholic spirits <laughs> um, to continue this chat and, and obviously just get your thoughts on it on the land. But um, thank you for giving us your time. I appreciate you. It's a, it's a busy time. Well, let's do that. And like I said, I look forward to it. And best of luck to you both. Thank you. Oh, I don't really know where to start, Tom. There are so many things, as I said in the, at the end of the interview, that I wanted to kind of discuss with you and debate with you. And I found that this is probably one of the most thought-provoking interviews so far in terms of really making me question what we're doing, the intentionality of that. And I guess some of those wider debates about what is the value of a name and you know, I guess from someone that works in an academic context, I understand the need for things to have rigour. But equally, there's something about we are kind of socially constructing these ideas as well. And is there value in that being a social movement? And then I got myself a bit confused. <laughs> yeah, and I, I echo everything you just said, really. It's hard to unpick it because from a marketeer's perspective, I am desperate for the fight about biodiversity loss, climate change to become more and more mainstream. I want to engage more people and have them all coming on board with something simple that they can grasp and hold. Even if it's not even described appropriately or clearly, we're missing, we're lacking that unifying place to belong. And and I really do see rewilding as that place, that word, that term that people can connect to. Having said that, when you hear someone of Stephen's kind of knowledge and experience articulating why it's important to call things the right by their correct name, the way he defines it, you kind of sit there going, yeah, yeah, no, I'm... You're right, yeah, and I'm, we're probably not rewilding, but that probably doesn't matter because we are all these other things, like he explains, and it gets me like kind of really excited as well because it means that there's room for everybody <laughs> in this, and the more we learn, the more opportunities present themselves. Yeah, and I guess that's why we do start a lot of interviews by saying, well, what does rewilding mean to you? Because recognising that everyone's going to have their own relationship with the term and that I guess there's no one truth about what rewilding is unless, well, I guess there's an academic truth that might be a kind of movement truth that might be a truth for us as an individual you know for us in the Grange project and I think what I one of the things I really took away was him talking about you know you've got to allow nature time and you've got to let go of the outcomes and I think those are two such hard things for humans to do because I think fundamentally we're not very patient and the idea of letting things happen over many lifetimes I think is a difficult one for us to hold on to even though I think we're trying to let go here and we're kind of being curious and we want to see what happens, we do have a hope of what it might look like and it will look more diverse, that we'll, we'll get more wildlife. And obviously that isn't, a, and, and is that enough of an intention for it to be too controlled? I don't know. Like, Well, well like Stephen says, that's why he wouldn't define this as rewilding because like he said, with the example of the lakes or ponds, you know, they are going to get silted up and then, yeah. you know, and then grow. But we, we don't have that space here. We have to, if, if a pond or, or, or a lake gets dug, because we only have 80 acres here, that's where probably the pond or lake needs to stay. So we're going to have to maintain that. So we just don't have the ability to let nature do its own thing all the time because there's just maintenance that has to happen because of the scale. And I think we are feeling pressure to do something, to, to like, you know, not just to be passive and to watch. Because I guess 
maybe my fear, maybe I don't want to speak for you, is that like, if we just did nothing, that it would look exactly the same in five years and people would be like, what, you just let it go back for nature and it just looks the same. That would be kind of my worry. Yeah, but I care less about what other people think and more about pulling this back to why we are doing this. Mm -hmm. And because we believe it is such an emergency and because we decide to step out of our mainstream of our professional careers in order to help address this, I think it's that important that we can't just sit back and assume that over, oh, it's okay, because over three lifetimes, this is going to achieve what we want to achieve. We have to, as Dr. Ali Driver says from Rewilding Britain, it's rewilding as a a marathon with a sprint start. And we very much are at that sprint start of our process here, even if it may not be academically rewilding. No, definitely. And I, I liked his last kind of model that I think he talked about like trying these two triangles and the need for there to be support from government and funding sources to enable that nature recovery and restoration, whatever you want to, you know, to happen. And it was making me think about how a lot of our funding at the moment is targeted for quite fixed states. You know, if you want to create a pond and you want funding from the great Crested Newts people, then you need to make sure that that stays a pond because that's the focus of their funding. They want to encourage a habitat for newts. So I understand that there's an intention they're having, but that doesn't really fit with this idea of, oh, let's just see what happens. So it is going to be interesting how, and I guess that'll be interesting in terms of how it fits in with biodiversity net gain for those in England around funding sources for rewilding. I do wonder how a NEP would respond to Stephen's um, Mm. perspective on what they're doing. Now, I suspect it would be something along the lines of, well, this is what we define as rewilding and rewilding has to pay. It has to make money in order to make it a sustainable solution. Like with our chat with Chris in the last episode, we've got to make sure this is intergenerational. This is this change here for the long term. Yeah, so you know, his example of that inverted triangle, I think, really just continues to be a common theme throughout a number of our conversations we have. One of the outcomes from us of this of the interview with, with Stephen is that we did go away and make a few changes to our text to describe things more as wilding than rewilding. And I, I completely agree with him that I'm not sure the re is super helpful because it does make us almost think about we're aiming for a a historic fixed state in a way as opposed to the kind of future possibilities but are you gonna get subtitled lots about it but I do I would do wonder whether we're going to spend our entire podcast for the next five years being like rewilding or wilding or nature conservation or you know or nature recovery or whatever you want to call it (laughs) like are we going to do that whenever we introduce it or can we just stick to something that works for us rather than always trying to qualify what we mean when we say rewilding or wilding or whatever I'm doing it again it's a really fair point and but you and I can have a conversation right now decide we're going to call it wilding going forward or whatever it doesn't matter but people that engage with our podcasts you know maybe that maybe the, the next time might be the first episode they listen to and they won't have understood the backstory and the reason why we've chosen to pick wilding as the term and the complexity around it so that's why I think we continue to make sure we clarify things because we want to make sure that people understand what we mean when we say these things it's hard I don't know no, I think you're right. Hopefully our regular listeners will appreciate every single time you say that. We think of Stephen and we think about the importance of language. Right. Is that it? Are we are we there for I mean we could talk about I'll probably sit here all evening, have a cheeky eggnog and uh <laughs> yeah. and, I'm not sure anyone wants to listen to that. And keep going, that could be a great episode. Chloe and Tom, bottle of wine. Dum dum. Not sure. <laughs> and listeners are ready for that. And those that know Chloe. So, so <laughs> well, All that's left is for us to wish everybody listening. We really, truly do appreciate you listening and taking your time. It's wonderful speaking to people, listening to the podcast, hearing from them, hearing the journeys that different people are going on. So from Chloe and I and the family, we wish you a Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and 2024, I think, is going to be an extremely exciting new year. It is. 